0: What's up, Bike Rumor fans? Today, I'm chatting with the founders of Bridge Bike Works, an ambitious carbon fiber bike brand starting up in Toronto, Canada. And when I say ambitious, I mean they're literally starting everything from scratch. There's not a single off-the-shelf aspect of their entire process, and they're making it all right there at their brand new factory. So what does it take to launch a new bicycle manufacturing plant and also launch your own brand of bike? Well, you're about to find out. Along with an explanation of their racy yet capable all-road geometry concept, which takes full advantage of bigger tires without sacrificing a whip-fast ride. This episode is brought to you by 10 Barrel Brewing, which, much to my delight, keeps a range of sours on tap year-round. Stay tuned for a bit more on where to find them. And now, please welcome Mike and Frank from Bridge Bike Works.
1: Hey Mike, hey Frank, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So we uh, got to hang out for a minute at Sea Otter this year. Mike, it was good to see you again. We've been friends for a while. Frank, it was good to meet you. You guys have a bit of an exciting project coming up. But first, let's uh, let you guys introduce yourselves so
2: everyone knows whose voice is who. Sure. I'm uh, Michael Yakubovich. I'm, I guess, a former municipal lawyer and urban planner who left my corporate life about 11 or 12 years ago to start a uh, shop called Blacksmith Cycle in Toronto. Reasonably uh boutique-y, performance-oriented bike shop. And uh, over the last 10 years, I've got to work with a lot of bigger brands like Specialized, Canyon, BMC, Orbea, and also help designing custom hand-built frames for customers with boutique builders like Argonaut, Bastion, Mosaic, and Bomb. So... Uh, been a great 10 years and very excited to embark on this project officially with my partner Frank here.
3: Yeah, and I'm uh, Frank Gardner. I'm one of the co-founders of Bridge Bike Works and my whole career has essentially been in, uh, in the startup space with manufacturing companies. Uh, started with uh, uh, metals really and then moved into, into composites and then eventually uh, uh, through that experience uh, decided to start up Bridge with, with Mike. Cool.
1: And when you say composites, uh, you know, like I think you were doing like racing boats and stuff like that, like super high stress, high performance composites projects, right?
3: Yeah, we actually made one of the world's first fully carbon fiber powerboats and uh, they were definitely racy, fully exposed carbon. We had about almost a 700 horsepower outboard motor on the back of it going close to 80 miles an hour, which is something pretty special to do with something that you've hand built to go that quick on the water. uh, So it was a, it was a fabulous experience. And the learning curve there was huge uh, coming from the metal space. Uh, It was a deep dive into composites and uh, ended up working with and getting trained by, I guess, one of UK's premier pre-preg trainers, uh, both through, uh, I guess, remote work in, in laminate schedules and figuring out what the theories are behind uh, building composite structures. And then also he came uh, for over a month, just to help us uh, build our first product, so the uh, the deep dive and the learning and composites was was thorough there. Very cool.
1: And to just so everyone knows, you guys are basing this project in Toronto. And so when we say you're starting a company, like you are literally starting everything from scratch. Like this isn't a hey, we're going to sketch out some designs and geo and send it to Asia to get made. Like you're in your building now. Which if it sounds a little hollow, it's because you guys are basically in a warehouse shell, why the machines are coming in. And I don't want to steal all your thunder and say it, but you're basically going to build the bikes 100% there in Toronto,
3: correct? That's uh, absolutely correct. Yeah. You know, we really believe in what we're calling authentic full cycle. And that's the engineering, the design, production, and community under one roof. And we're doing it all. It's uh, fully integrated here. Uh, We've got our own CNC vertical mill. So we're going to be doing our tooling uh, in-house as well. Uh, one of the big lessons from my past is that the tool is really the golden egg in the facility. It, it really is what represents the quality of your part. So that's something that we wanted to have deep, deep control over. And we can you know, we can get into more details about that later. But, uh, but yeah, we're doing everything. We're not even ordering our tubes. We're making our own tubes. We're making our own junctions. And throughout the design process, uh, we actually decided to make our own fork too. And Mike can talk to the specifics of that, I guess, later on. But part of that was just to, you know, ensure that we had the right ride qualities that we specifically wanted throughout all size uh,
2: size offerings. I was going to say, you know, I've had over the last 10 years, a lot of opportunities to be part of startups or, or start a bike brand myself. And really the, the hurdle was always not wanting to just be another Asian produced manufacturer where you're outsourcing everything overseas but also not wanting to be just, you know, a garage manufacturer doing tube to tube carbon in, in a small facility. And really, for me, Frank was a little bit of the missing piece, someone who's got manufacturing and startup and specifically composites experience that allows us to more or less build a world class composites facility in Toronto. And, you know, to manufacture something at a ridiculously high quality, but also a scalability that'll allow us to grow and and also allow us to offer a product that's not priced at twice what an Asian manufactured frame costs, but actually competitive at hopefully a, a better quality. So, you know, super excited to have met Frank and, and embarked on this. We've been working almost two years now at the project um, from kind of our partnership to Setting up factory and producing our first model, which we'll tell you more about. So definitely uh, been an exciting journey, and really super stoked that it's now becoming a little more tangible. And uh, excited to tell you a bit more about the details.
1: Cool. And I think so. I know you have done a lot of custom bikes for a lot of customers through Blacksmith Cycles over the years, and you know you built some custom bikes for yourself as well. So. I imagine having done all those different fits, all those different designs and working with, you know, several of the top custom bike manufacturers in the country, if not the world, to create frames that ride well and fit a particular customer's needs that you sort of have a good understanding of what works in terms of geometry. But like, what else are you bringing to the table in this project? Like, how how did you go from bike shop owner and you know custom coordinator to designing the bikes for this one? I'll say right off
2: the bat that Frank and I are working with an incredible team. So it's it's a lot more than just us. We've got an engineering firm in Quebec that we've worked with for the last 16 months or so. Our first in-house engineer was a former top-level Cervello employee. So I think we've got about 80 years of engineering experience on our team. So definitely, uh, you know, I've got really smart people to lean on.
1: So you're I mean, not my, just sketching something on a napkin and saying,
2: here go, build this? <laughs> Definitely not. I kind of see myself as a little more of the product coordinator trying to take a lot of the knowledge I've gained over the last decade. uh, Like you say, working on a lot of high end bikes, but also designing bikes with some of the best frame builders in the world. And, uh, you know, distilling that down into what do we think, you know, the industry is not doing right? Where do we think there are gaps in terms of opportunities for not just us as a company, but to provide something to customers that's unique and authentic and different but yeah also learning from you know my interactions with Darren Baum and Ben Farber from Argonaut and you know Aaron Barcheck from Mosaic working with really intelligent frame builders who have learned a lot from a ride quality focus perspective a geometry perspective you know how how bikes handle and you know fortunate that I've been able to design literally hundreds of custom bikes for customers everything from race bikes to full on gravel adventure bikes so i've basically been able to test out about every geometry combination possible work on about every big brand bike out there and so you know slowly built up a wish list of things that we we wanted in terms of uh, a model offering and um yeah super excited to then be able to work with an incredible engineering team to kind of bring that to fruition, but also to kind of test um, my knowledge base and, and push us in terms of where the frame design should go. This is certainly not just my, you know, opinion, and that's it. We're really uh, rolling in a lot of a lot of knowledge to this product. Um, Frank himself is a super strong rider, all road, gravel, mountain. I've ridden road bikes and then gravel bikes since I was about 16. So almost getting closer to 30 years of of riding now. I I joke that I was a cyclist way before cycling was a cool sport. So yeah, you know, really absolutely kind of tickled to be able to take all that knowledge and, and hopefully sprinkle it on top of an incredible engineering team and a partner who's got phenomenal composites and manufacturing experience and hopefully come out with something that you know, we're saying we really want to build a world class product, and that's a line that I think gets bandied about by a lot of companies. But, you know, the engineering focus, the ability to produce everything in-house, control our tooling, control our layman schedule, control the quality of our product so nothing leaves the factory that we don't think is incredible is definitely an opportunity that I don't think I ever imagined this this would emerge, but very excited to to work on this and super interested to see what people like you who you know, know the industry really well think of what we're putting out there because we're really hoping we're taking a both a novel approach but also not trying to totally reinvent the wheel take what works from the designers and builders i've worked with but also put our own spin on things and go in some directions that the big brands or the industry as a whole doesn't necessarily go Really to create something that's got the technology of a thoroughly modern bike, but some classic elements that have worked well for decades in terms of bike design. And really pick and choose what we think is the right combination that'll work well for our customers.
1: Yeah, so what, like working with all those different brands, like what do you think, what, what were some of the key lessons that you learned in terms of, you know, like what works versus what doesn't that you're taking with
2: you? before we start talking about what, what's novel that you're bringing to the table? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll say on kind of a, a high-level approach, I think we really recognized was that there seemed to be kind of two sides to the bike production story. You have your big brands, you know, your spe- specialized canyons, giants, Cannondales of the world that really focus on dedicated engineering, high-performance kind of methodology, and of course, have relatively good value because all of those frames are produced in Asia. But I would say on the flip side, a lot of those companies are lacking in high level quality control and maybe a little bit lacking in the authenticity and uniqueness of their design. You know, a lot of these big brands are now being kind of engineered towards one another, where it seems like every modern race bike kind of looks the same because they're they're working within the same design and engineering parameters. And then on the flip side, I've worked with a lot of what you would call kind of boutique or hand-built firms. And for those guys, I think the focus on quality control, the artistic elements, and more forward thinking design features is all there. But I would say most of those firms are probably lacking in the capital and access to high-level engineering that allows the performance to be fully developed and we thought there was really a gap where we wanted to see can we take the engineering performance and value proposition of the bigger brands but match the quality artistic focus and attention to detail of the small brands and that's what we're endeavoring to do is say you know can we take the best of both sides and spend money on the engineering on the quality of our facility on the people on our team and come out with product that we think rivals any of those pro tour bikes, but has the hand-built quality of the boutique brand. So that's really been more than anything without getting into, let's say, specific design features or geometry features, kind of the overarching goals. Can we take the best of both sides and fill that gap in the middle?
1: Frank, was there with the composite stuff, you know, like now that you're seeing how bike tubes are made and all that, is there something you saw as an opportunity to improve upon based
3: on your prior composites experience? Yeah, yes. I mean, I think the biggest thing that you can improve on uh, in composites is just nailing down your process. Everything in composites comes down to process. Uh, I mean, I commonly say the unique thing about composites is that you're making the material and the part all at the same time. You know, it's not like a piece of metal where everything's homogenous and you just cut into it to make a shape you're making it every single time you go and make a bike. So in essence, it's, you, know, you could get to the point where each, each bike that comes off the line is different if you don't have that process nailed. So and you, know, you do see that in, in the industry quite a bit of uh, you know, quality control issues and whatnot. Whereas if you do local, one of the things that you do have to incredibly focus on and also a barrier to entry to a lot of people is what Mike was talking about, the, the focus on the engineering and the process. One of the main reasons for that is because, one, everything's a bit more expensive. So you have to decrease your scrap rate to as close as zero as you possibly can. Uh, And on top of that, if you do have any errors in post-processing or in process itself, uh, you can't just throw labor at it to fix it. So the upfront time and money put into engineering ends up paying off in the long run because you just have to perfect that process. So for me, my main lesson in Composites was... Every single step of the, of the uh, development, uh, everything from your original, let's say, digital design to your actual tooling to the processes that you have in place in your shop, are absolutely critical to get what you actually want to make out there. So you, you know you have to be confident that when you ship that bike, that that person is getting one what you sold them and two the performance and. Uh, Integrity in the product that you're telling them that it is, and and in composites, there's really no way to do that other than having a process nailed. And so that's one thing that you know doing it locally really, really advantages us. And you know we we're going to know every single thing that goes into that product. Our hands are going to touch it all, and the process is just going to be
2: absolutely uh, dialed. It's worth adding, Tyler, also that you know when we embarked on the project, I think both of us, even though Frank's got serious composites and manufacturing experience. We were both, I think, humble enough to really ask the question, not, okay, how do we build the best bike, but first to step back and say, how do we build the best composites facility? And we worked with a team of engineers that had deep experience in terms of setting up composite shops and specifically bicycle building composite shops in North America, and really kind of stepped back and said, what are all of the newest manufacturing methodologies, some that are unproven, some that are well proven. And so kind of step one was, how do we build the best facility we can? And, you know, the fact that we're going to make our own tooling, um, that we've got our own autoclave, you know, definitely some some steps beyond your typical small production shop. And Frank's really taken that and run with it in terms of the overall plan in terms of our manufacturing process, and the quality of of equipment we're using so you know we really step one was how do we build the best facility possible and from there the ability to build the best product we can was sort of the, the natural next step
1: all right i imagine if you've been working on this for two years still don't have a product you're building or creating all the you're buying all the machinery and setting up the factory and all this you you know you have a building which you know maybe you bought maybe you're any this has got to be an expensive endeavor like you know, just in my own personal entrepreneurial curiosity is like, what is the actual startup cost of something like this? And how in the
3: world are you guys paying for it? Well, yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, it is and a lot of it is actually just time, uh, time spent. So obviously, you got your sweat equity in there, partnering with the right people who are able to put that time in. And though it's been two years, a lot, you know, a portion of that time was, you know, Mike and I planning it out, uh, figuring out our own partnership. Both of us are are both experienced on on that side to make sure that you start things right with the right partnership uh, in order to continue and 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 keep things flowing and in, in, in a positive manner. The other side of things is 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 not my first rodeo on this side. So I understand the steps that need to be taken and and in some cases have those contacts already and can space it out in a way that uh, helps the cash flow. So that's helped a lot and and knowing what to look for. Uh, you know, I've set up composite shops before. The nice thing is, from a composite perspective, the shops aren't as crazy expensive as, as, say, if you set up a full metal, ma- metal manufacturing facility. And uh, so you can get away with uh, doing a lot with a little to start. Uh, and then as things ramp up, you can add pieces of equipment and staff as needed. So, you know, it's been manageable in that way, for sure. As far as costs go, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a range there, depending, I mean, if people are listening to, Deciding it to do it themselves, I mean, it's more are you willing to take the risk for for the reward at that point, but uh, and you know we assessed that we would and and uh, so far
2: it's uh, it's already starting to pay off, so it, which is which is fantastic. And that's what I was saying, Tyler, about wanting to do something that was well beyond you know kind of a boutique garage kind of manufacturing facility. the The reality is there are significant costs associated with the investment Frank and I have made in the brand. We've been able to raise a little bit of money and are going to do one more round of fundraising. I would endeavor to guess that, you know, I don't know behind the scenes of how other smaller brands have started. But my hunch is our first model will be a level of engineering and really an investment in that engineering and design and production process that is way beyond what most small manufacturers do. And that also relates to our ability to produce a higher number of bikes, even in year one. You know, there's a lot of small frame builders that are starting and saying, okay, we're trying to trying to sell 20 bikes in our first year. We're trying to get into the hundreds of bikes sold in year one, both consumer direct and through a dealer network that we're developing. But yeah, that was kind of to be a little bit rude is, you know, we're not half-assing this. And uh, <laughs> the, the idea is... Like you say you you can talk a big game in terms of oh, we're building something unique and high end, but we're trying to really walk the talk and by using the best engineers in Canada, arguably in North America, and building the best facility we could, we really think a a phenomenal product is going to flow from that, and certainly it's a it's a big enough investment that most people wouldn't want to do it on their own but uh,
3: <laughs> yeah, and it was uh it was unique uh. For me, too, because coming in as a bit of an outsider to the industry, uh, you know, other than, uh, other than being a consumer and, and, and lover of, uh, of cycling. But, you know, to me, for the other companies that I started, you start that company to make something that's completely and uniquely yours. So when I when I entered uh, and decided to start Bridge with Mike, that was all that I had in mind is that we're going to do this from scratch. And that's just how you do things. And so I guess in some ways there's a benefit and I guess perhaps a drawback, depending on how you look at it. To a certain amount of naivety on on how things are done in the industry, and, and you know, the deeper that I got into it, and the more I learned about the industry, and, and realized that it, you know, it's quite typical for brands to start with other models that aren't quite theirs, or they they uh, buy it from another company that that went under, or whatever the process is, that they've ended up with molds that they can quite quickly make a bike out of that that they branded as their own, and and go from there, and end up being a bit of more of a marketing sales. And distribution hub than they are a manufacturer. and and that was pretty enlightening to me to realize that we've gone about it uh, the hardest possible way. But in the end, I don't think I'd want to do it any other way. I mean to have our uh, to have the bridge fingerprint on every part of that frame set is
2: you know the thing that makes me feel the best about doing what we're doing. And in terms of the design process, Tyler, it also means that you know we really don't have limitations in terms of what we can build because we're doing our own tooling bringing in pre-preg carbon straight into the facility. We'll have the ability to alter our laminate schedule as much as we really possibly want. So as kind of the designer, so to speak, you know, it's been pretty amazing to not feel like I'm constrained in terms of whether it's, you know, tube shaping for aerodynamics and stiffness or whether it's kind of the features of the frame set that we wanted to include, whether that was internal cable routing or the bottom bracket type we chose. It really has been a pretty blank slate in terms of where we want to go with the design with the product. So again, that relates to really not wanting to just be a two to two, like a simple round two carbon manufacturer, but to do something uh, a little more ambitious. Cool. So let's
1: talk about the bike itself for a minute. The first model is going to be something of kind of like a
2: all-road bike, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. It's called uh, Surveyor. And um, it is meant to be an all-road bike. We kind of jokingly, internally call it the N plus one killer. Really bad idea as a bike brand to, to market that. But, you know, really, we're trying to create a bike with no major weaknesses. So something that was light, stiff, comfortable, reasonably aero, and then versatile in terms of its tire clearance. So we see this as what we think is... The modern road bike suitable for all roads. So something you could race road on, you know, whether that's Grand Fondo or kind of typical stage races, but that you could also take to unbound and, you know, put on a 38 or 40 millimeter tire and race gravel on it. So really that was the goal is to create something that covered road riding to light gravel and really wasn't compromised in any environment. So, we essentially created the tightest handling characteristics on the market for a bike that will officially fit a 38 millimeter tire. Unofficially, wink, wink, we think you can go a little bigger. So, that means our chainstay lengths are, I believe, the shortest on the market for the tire clearance we have at uh, 417 millimeters. But this isn't meant to be an endurance bike. You know, the handling characteristics are reasonably quick, the trail number, Specifically, and and that's part of why we created our own proprietary fork, so we could have two rakes to keep trail kind of consistent across the range, and really focused on uh, 700 seat wheels with 28 to 38 millimeter tires. So not trying to do something that'll take a 23 or 25 millimeter tire, which we think those days are dead pretty much anyways, with all the big wheel manufacturers going wider now. And nor were we trying to design something that'll take a six fifty by forty eight. It was really meant to be an all road bike that can be raced or ridden hard in a variety of circumstances. So that was kind of the goal.
3: Yeah, and there's also a de-risking aspect to the choice that we did too. Uh, as we've chatted about, starting from scratch is uh, and 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 getting to where we already are is is capital intensive and 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 risky. So we wanted to bring a product to market that we would be able to straddle both the road world and the gravel world as best possible with with all the attributes that Mike talked about and get as much data that we can from our customers in order to better uh, make a decision on the next products that we come out with.
1: When we were at Sea Otter hanging out over a couple of beers, which is a a nice way of me saying that uh, this podcast is brought to you by Tin Barrel Brewing and uh, (laughs) they have some awesome beers. And so, uh, we can talk more about beer in a minute, but, um, I, one of the things that stands out to me, and I don't remember the number, so that's where you come in is bottom bracket drop. And there's, you know, you kind of have a strong opinion on that and are incorporating that into the spikes design.
2: Yeah. Our bottom bracket drop, it starts at 78 millimeters for the three biggest sizes and goes to 80 millimeter drop for our two smallest sizes.
1: Put that into perspective. You know, like if I had like, uh. You know, a Roubaix or a Kendall Synapse or something like. How does that compare?
2: Well, I'd say typically, you know, bottom bracket drops on road bikes have been around the sixty-eight to seventy millimeter mark for many decades. Road geometry design hasn't changed all that much. You know, if you're looking, let's say, bring in cross bikes would typically have had a taller bottom bracket for a little more kind of side-to-side agility and the ability to pedal through corners. In recent years, you've seen Some road and endurance bikes uh, go to slightly lower bottom bracket drops, but most manufacturers are still in the kind of 70 to 75 millimeter drop range. And the reason we went lower is, well, there's a number of reasons. Number one, my opinion is tires have gotten progressively bigger, especially over the last five years, where that 68 to 70 mil bottom bracket drop was designed to incorporate a 23 millimeter tire, basically. And uh, now that we're all running twenty eights and bigger, or we should be, essentially you've you've raised your center of gravity by at least a few millimeters, and in the case of, let's say, a thirty eight millimeter tire even more. So we felt that dropping the bottom bracket essentially by that difference keeps the rider's center of gravity where more or less we've thought it was appropriate for many decades. So we're kind of following the tire clearance and tire size trend and lowering the bottom bracket slightly to kind of relate to that. The thing that a low BB does is it gives you a little more stability, a little more of a feeling of being kind of in the bike as opposed to on top of it. I've designed a lot of bikes with slightly low BB drops, and most customers comment the bike just carves really well, descends really well. And the risk in the low bottom bracket drop, number one would be if you're building you know, either a crit bike or a hardcore gravel bike, you know, you don't want to have issues of pedaling through corners or pedaling off rock roots and, and flipping your, your pedal. But that's not what the bike is designed to do. And um, the other thing is, if you look at some of the most revered designers and frame builders in the world, Richard Sachs, Darren Baum, often they're using low bottom racket drops. It's one of those things that anecdotally, I can tell you, having ridden bikes with lower BB drops and design bikes for people it's almost always a positive in terms of someone's recognition of the handling profile of the bike. The other thing is, you know, bike design, you know, when I was saying geometries are based, haven't really changed for 50 years. You know, those were typically designed for lugged steel bikes that were A, heavy, and B, not all that stiff. So, you know, you hear people say, oh, a low low bottom bracket feels sluggish. And My answer is really usually like, have you ridden a modern carbon fiber bike with a low bottom bracket? Because bikes are so stiff and light these days. And I'll tell you, like, we've got an almost 60 millimeter down tube and a huge bottom bracket with a T47 BB. That stiffness and responsiveness is not going to be an issue with this bike. But by lowering that BB slightly, we're hoping that the ride kind of handling characteristics are improved, that the center of gravity with big tires makes. Makes more sense, and that most customers, once they ride a bike that's a little bit more stable and a little bit more carvable, totally understand where we're coming from. So we know we're going to have a small subsect of you know those crit racers who say, oh, it's too low. I need to be able to pedal through corners, or someone who wants to race cross and maybe think the BB is a little low. But on the other hand, I know you know Cervelo's a Sparrow has a relatively low BB drop and. Some of their pro tour riders were racing that bike in cross in Europe last year. So I also don't think three or four millimeters of bottom bracket drop really prevents you from racing cross or, or racing crits. But we thought overall it was it was the right match. And, and that's also why we say 728 to 38 millimeter tire clearance that I think a lot of brands chase 650 compatibility. And if you were to run, let's say 650 by 42s, you're actually at a smaller diameter than a 700 by twenty eight, so you're lowering the bike, and that's where you get into you know pedal strike issues. So by really saying this isn't a hardcore adventure bike, we're not designing it for 650s. We were able to focus on designing a geometry that we thought was kind of perfect for that 28 to 38 millimeter tire size. You know, just to conclude, if you look at a couple of you know recent product offerings like the the Allied Echo, or the new Wilier Rave, I think you're seeing other manufacturers push into that kind of all-road category to really create something that'll work well on the road and on light gravel. You know, we just really focused on finding that sweet spot in terms of handling and geometry that you won't feel like it's compromised if you're running a 28 or a 38. That that'll handle both phenomenally. Cool.
1: And then let's talk about mounts for a minute because you know I, I like top tube bento box mounts. I think you might feel differently about that. You said it's not really an adventure bike. So what sort of things like accessories and extra little features will we find on the surveyor?
2: I might flip this over to Frank in a moment. I'll say, you know, to start, we really wanted a relatively classic silhouette on the bike. So we avoided drop seat stays and drop chain stays. And that was a lot of the engineering Focus is how do we get the tire clearance and geometry we want without resorting to drop stays? So, similarly, you know, we wanted to create something that doesn't have an abundance of mounts. Obviously, the advantage we have though is again, making everything by hand in house. We can rely on kind of post process steps. So, potentially, we're looking at the possibility of of offering bento mounts or an additional bottle cage under the down tube or possibly even everything mounts on the forks but doing those as basically inserts in our tooling so we can either do those while we're molding the bikes or potentially post process so that is one of the things we're kind of working to finalize in our engineering and design i guess my my quick answer is right now we're not designing the frame to definitely have all of those things i think we want it to be kind of a little closer to let's say a race bike than an adventure bike but the possibility of adding those items as options is something we're looking at even possibly an extra bottle cage location in the down tube you know in the main triangle area so we're we're aware that you know a lot of customers want that additional capability you know we also think that the improvement in bag options in the last you know, five or 10 years is significant. And we've already talked to a couple of different bag manufacturers about potentially doing a custom run of you know, strap-on bags for the surveyor that would fit you know, the triangle perfectly. So we're kind of taking it into consideration. You know, We know some folks want the added capability that those additional everything mounts provide. So that's one of those those things that we're going to kind of dial in over the next couple months as we start producing prototypes and and playing with the production kind of methodology. Cool. Worth saying also, Tyler, that we totally envision whether it's year two or year three launching a road bike and then a full-on adventure gravel bike. So you know that adventure gravel bike, we've already started highlighting design features that we want to focus on and. Certainly a plethora of mounts and, you know, making that bike as versatile as possible is going to be on the menu in terms of what we want. We're still trying to make those final decisions with the surveyor to kind of see how much we offer in terms of those, those additional options.
1: Yeah, well, bags are good, right? Because, you know, if, if you were going to stop and, say, pick up some 10-barrel brewing beers, um, you <laughs> need somewhere to put them, right? <laughs> Had to work it in. Actually, I wanted to work it in. Those guys are great. So sizes, then, like, because you guys are not doing custom, these will be stock sizes. What uh, what's the size run, and
2: you know? Sure. Yeah, we're it, we're saying that our meth, our kind of construction methodology allows us to look at launching a full custom program in the future. I'd say it's something that will likely follow within twelve months of the surveyors' launch, but not going to be at launch. So. For our first model, we we created a a size run of five sizes in terms of virtual top tube length, really going from about a 51 to a 58 and a half, 59. And we really started with the size 51 or extra small and designed that to accommodate essentially as small a rider as we thought could fit on that bike while still having adequate toe overlap room for a 700C tire. What height rider is that that you have in mind?: I would say, you know, obviously the proportions of the rider is important, but someone who's four foot 10 should be able to ride our smallest size potentially, and our size 59 or extra large should go up to someone who's about, you know, six, four or six, five. So we've tried to produce a size, a size run that really works for as much of the majority of the population as possible. It's worth mentioning that we look at a lot of data from not just North American riders, but but international markets that tend to trend a little smaller. Because we do want to be an international brand, we made sure that smallest size would fit as small a rider as we could design around. So things like the fact that our top tube is an 8 to 10 degree slope, depending on size, was meant kind of twofold. Number one, increase seat post exposure and comfort. But two, also allow a range of riders to get on the bike. And, you know, I've done a lot of custom bike fits where if someone has shorter legs and a longer upper body, and a bike has a reasonably horizontal top tube, often you just don't have enough seat post exposure or standover height is just too tall for that rider. So by sloping the top tube to that eight or 10 degree mark, we're allowing you know a shorter rider to ride the bike and increasing the compliance for taller riders who are going to have more seat post exposure.
1: Um, oh, it looks that was, better too, right? Like I, I think a longer seat post extension just kind of aesthetically is a
2: little more pleasing.
1: You guys totally. run a 27.2 post then?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, when we kind of call it a modern classic, we wanted some features that maybe aren't the most marketable, but we really believe in. So 27.2 posts with a round seat collar that we're producing, and even a round front derailleur clamp, which will allow you to run the bike one by or two by.
1: Are you guys going to make a carbon fiber front derailleur clamp like Parley does? Because that thing is pretty awesome.
2: It is pretty awesome. My quick answer is it's probably going to be CNC'd metal. I mean, my experience with that Parley clamp is the stiffness is not amazing. I've actually been a Parley dealer and we've built up a lot of those bikes and Parley builds phenomenal bikes, but I've never been a huge fan of that carbon front derailleur clamp. It's light and it looks good, but the front shifting performance is just okay. So we're actually looking to uh, design our own. It'll actually have a slight kind of angle built into it to compensate for the exact shape of our seat tube and that's you know another example of we know producing our own front derailleur clamp is not a super sexy thing that's going to sell a ton of bikes but in terms of creating something that is super strong super light looks good and functions perfectly with our bike it's something we wanted to do so because Frank and I are not you know we're not dealing with a team of accountants or marketing people who are <laughs> trying to you know nitpick or or bean count we're really able to make decisions that we think are the best decision for the brand and the product, uh, even if it's going to cost us a few bucks more here or there.
3: We did assess uh, off-the-shelf uh, front derailleur clamps. And a lot of times the way that they clamp on there, uh, the bolt actually interferes with your tire clearance a little bit. Part of our assessment there too was, was you know we wanted to maximize our, our tire clearance there and couldn't find an appropriate fit. So in the, in the habit of making things easy on ourselves, we decided to, uh, to make that component our own. <laughs>
1: And there's not, I mean, other than that, probably one, there's really not a lot of good looking front derailleur clamps out there either. So I think it
2: gave you an opportunity to make some aesthetic improvements as well, I'm sure. Totally. And yeah, that combination of aesthetics and functionality, you know, that's the reason we're doing our own uh, seat collar as well. You know, it's a point of relative weakness on a lot of bikes, whether they've got, you know, cheap round collars or integrated kind of wedge style. Uh, seat clamps, um, you know, we found that that seat collar is just often an area of problems and warranties on bikes. And so, you know, designing something that's proprietary, but that also is kind of simple was in the end an obvious choice. As one example of kind of the engineering deep dive, we did look at that seat tube and whether or not it should be kind of aerodynamic and shaped or whether we should just build around seat tube and You know, again, like a lot of bike brands make that seat tube aero looking or have like a a cutout, you know, so the wheel can get what looks like get closer, but doesn't actually necessarily get any closer in terms of shortening the chain stays. And we we looked at it and said, okay, the aerodynamically, the air is quite dirty by the time it gets to the seat tube. And there's I don't want to say negligible, but almost no aero advantage to an aero seat tube. But the flip side is a round seat tube is lighter, it's more durable, it's more manufacturable, and it creates better ride quality. So we went with a round seat tube. And those are the sort of decisions we're making all. in every aspect of the bike is not just let's follow the industry trend, but let's actually look at whether or not this makes sense. So similarly, in terms of our cable routing, you know, I know a lot of mechanics and media guys like you who work on their bikes don't love fully internal cable routing. But I know that dealing with consumers on a day-to-day basis, most customers want a bike that's fully internally routed. That is the kind of modern look that people are looking for.
1: Very few of them are dorking around with their bikes as much as we are, right? Like, I I have to change groups every now and then to change new stuff or change brakes or this, that, and the other. That is a pain in the butt. But for most people who they buy it, and then they don't touch it for years right or when they do they take it to a shop like who cares
2: i'd absolutely rather have internal for sure but i'll say the flip side is rather than just say okay we'll just you know pick whatever system and run with it we really still tried to make it better so our internal system we're we've designed to work with a variety of cockpit options so it'll work with you know the FSA ACR system the NV system pros new integrated one piece bar and it'll work with both one by and two by drive trains and electronic and mechanical. So we haven't eliminated the possibility of mechanical like a lot of brands have. You know, we have to work a little bit harder on our engineering, but in the end, we we're trying to create a better bike kind of at every at every turn, um, trying to make the decision that is intelligent and forward thinking that is not just follow every trend, but let's look at what all those trends are and then try to examine which are the ones that make sense and, you know, what do we kind of just say, you know, we don't think this is really what consumers need and move on. So that Ram seat collar is, is an example of the latter uh, where we just said, you know, we're okay with being a little bit old school because we think it's actually going to produce a better product.
1: Cool. Well, you know, there is, it's like the longer seat tube or seat post extension, right? There is something about that classic aesthetic on a modern bike that is very appealing. So. I know I, I've seen some kind of sneak peeks and I'm hoping you're going to send me like a rendering or something that we can share along with this podcast so people can get an idea of what's coming. But when is the official unveil and when can somebody actually like pre-order or buy
3: one of these? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so we uh, we already have our, our website out, out and it's been up for a little while. Uh, we haven't started any main uh, marketing pushes yet. This is uh, one of our first with you, Tyler. But uh, we do have the ability to pre-order our frame set on there. And we're working hard to deal with all the suppliers at this point in time uh, to then offer complete builds as well. We just want to make sure that we can offer complete builds that can actually be delivered in our timeline. So we uh, have already had a pretty successful pre-sales run. And they are slated to start shipping uh, earliest as possible would be uh, uh, late spring of 2022. Yeah and uh, we're we're working uh, like crazy to make that happen. And we're you know from now, we should be uh, laying fabric and prototyping in mid to late November, doing our iterations from there on out, and starting uh, focusing on production in late January. That's the plan, and we're moving as fast as we possibly can. And uh, again, one of the benefits of doing everything ourselves is we don't have to wait for anybody other than ourselves. So you know once we get up up and running with prototyping, You know, you could make something on the Monday, test it that day or the next day, change it up on the Tuesday, on the Wednesday, and have something to ride again on the Friday. So your product iteration cycles are drastically shortened, which allow us to move at a much faster pace.
1: Yeah. How many test mules, like how many different
3: samples do you anticipate going through or or have you gone through already? I would say we haven't already. Uh, We have 3D printed our bike to date, so we've and you know, that's mostly just been from a, Let's look at it physically. We've been looking at the screen too long. So we ended up 3D printing that and assessing how it's uh, put together and just all the lines and you know a lot of aesthetics as well. I would say that by uh, hopefully mid-December, we'll have our first uh, test uh, rideable uh, bike. And then from then on out, I mean, it'll really be however many we can make until we're comfortable. And so there isn't really a, a concrete number for us. It's when does it feel how we want it to feel? And when does it pass uh, all the tests that we need to we need to put it under in terms of life cycle and highly accelerated
2: life cycle testing and stress testing and whatnot? Fortunately, Tyler, Frank, myself and our engineer, Thanos, are all about six foot two. So we're going to have uh, our size large coming out of the mold first uh, so we can all Perfect. ride it. So, I mean, that's... The beauty of doing it all ourselves, you know, I know a lot of bike brands who produce in Asia, you know, they engineer a bike, they send it off, they get a prototype. And if they don't like it, or if there are problems, making changes is very expensive and very slow. For us, you know, you know, we don't expect to build one prototype and say, wow, we nailed it, no changes, but it's really as many as needed. Whether we're changing the CAD modeling and our tooling or whether we're having to refine the, the laminate schedule or the carbon layup, if it's five mules or if it's 20, it really doesn't matter. We're going to keep going until we think it's virtually perfect. There will be steps in between. We'll do some kind of prototyping of using different carbon suppliers and, and vetting different, let's say, combinations of carbon that we can use in, in the production. But yeah. We don't have a number in terms of a, a maximum number of test mules We're we're going to build as many as we need to get our process completely dialed, you know, get our our weights where we want them, get our ride quality where we want it. So uh, that'll be to be determined. But we've got at least a few months laid out where we can go through that process and build and ride and iterate as as needed. Cool.
1: I know we're coming up on close to an hour of this, so maybe just give a quick answer on this one. But uh, have you guys looked at using any other materials like a, uh, like an aramid or a Vectran or, you know, going with TechStream or something like that? Or are you sticking with, you know, are you doing like high mod, 4K, UD? Like what's, what kind of fibers are you using? And if you're not using anything fancy, why not?
3: Yeah, so we are uh, in the process of developing our laminate schedule right now. And absolutely, we'll be using uh, unique materials such as Aramid and whatnot in certain areas. But that's probably something we can circle back to, uh, you know, if we do this again or or do an article with you or whatnot, uh, where we have more info on that. But, uh, you know, largely uh, UD, uh, largely, you know, the best possible uh, fabric that we can get. It's all epoxy pre-preg. And there's, you know, we're not trying to save any money on material, that's for sure.
2: And certainly, Tyler, you know, I've worked with builders who back in the day when Museu was producing bikes with flax fiber. Um, I've seen my guys, Gianni Pegaretti in Italy, D'Anima, they use kind of a Kevlar layer in the seat tube for vibration absorption and durability. So, you know, we're gonna look at the latest and greatest in terms of options. But as Frank says, safe to say most of the bike will just be UD carbon of different grades. And, you know, that's something I've even learned as, you know, I, I joke that I probably know more about carbon than than most people, having just worked in the bike industry for 10 years. But, you know, a lot of people have asked me, oh, are you going to use Torre or Mitsubishi? And and I've learned, you know, working with Frank, that the answer is a lot more nuanced and that the quality of your carbon is more than just a number. Oh, and we're using T800 or T1000. There's so many attributes in terms of your your carbon fiber and your producer. That will have to mesh well with your production method and, you know, specifically the product we're building. So, you know, again, this isn't final, but we'll, we'll have between
3: 300 to 500 different pieces of carbon going into the frame set. And each one of those pieces is designed specifically to perform a certain role. So whether that's uh, UD at a certain angle, plus minus 45, whatever it ends up being, each one of those pieces is not carelessly thrown in there. It's thought of well ahead of time. Uh, precision cut, so we're going to have a a CNC cutting table and nested perfectly to not waste any material. Uh, so a ton of thought is going to be going into that laminate schedule, and and again, every single one of those plies is is purpose placed.
1: In other words, no uh, duct tape and bu- bubble gum, huh?
3: <laughs> not on this one, no. All
1: right, all right, cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time, and um, yeah, you know, for people
2: who want to check it out, what's the website, the Instagram, all that stuff website is bridgebikeworks.com and Instagram is bridgebikeworks. We will have not just the ability to pre-order frame sets, but build kit configuration options on the website within the next few weeks. Fortunately, we got started early enough that we've pre-ordered a big number of group sets from Shimano and SRAM. We should be actually building bikes come spring and not just waiting for parts. But, yeah, people can go to the website. We've got uh, some of the three d renderings up. We'll be adding uh, more color options as those get released, and then more build options uh, later on. The website will continue to be developed with a dealer locator and and some other other features. But uh, both the website and instagram are uh, are rolling and and we'll be putting out more technical info, factory tour videos, and a lot more over the next couple months. Yeah, Tyler, I guess another thing
3: to mention, is, I guess, one of the biggest benefits of being a, a local manufacturer, obviously Canadian, but North American in general, is, that, you know, our doors are open. I mean, we're we're here to be transparent. We want our customers to come in and, and see what we're doing to learn how bikes are built. Uh, we do plan on, you know, running educational programs once we get up and running in the new year. And so it's it's a huge thing for us to be directly connected with our community and in, in all respects from obviously making the bike and, and then seeing your customers come through the door and receive that bike and it's just super exciting for us to be i guess what we would call authentic community and it's full cycle in that sense and and it's uh it's exciting and i know we chatted at sea otter there that uh, we got to get you up here to visit too
1: yeah absolutely I'm, i can't wait to see it well, guys well thank you and uh yeah if you're listening check out the full post on bike rumor you can just go to bike podcast and you'll find a list of every episode with a link to each one and check out this one for a few photos and links to all the stuff that we talked about and uh yeah guys appreciate it and can't wait to ride one thanks tyler really appreciate
2: it looking forward to getting you on one
0: I love the entrepreneurial spirit these guys are bringing to the table. I've ridden some of the custom bikes that Mike's had made for himself over the years, and I'll say this, he definitely gets it. So I'm really curious to see how his vision and experience blends with the technical expertise they've assembled from both inside and outside of the bike industry. Sometimes it takes a fresh perspective to introduce new ideas, and my hunch is that's exactly what they're doing. Speaking of fresh, if you're in Colorado, Idaho, or their home state of Oregon, check out the Ten Barrel Brewing Breweries for some fresh beer. Not only do they have a huge assortment of lagers, pilsners, and IPAs, and my favorite, sours, but they also host some pretty cool events, like watch parties for bike races and stuff. They also support us here at Bike Groomer by sponsoring this podcast, so check them out if you're in the area or look for Ten Barrel Brews at the store. If you like this and you want more great interviews and company profiles, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Take a second, do it now if you can. It really helps us grow, and that helps us to continue bringing you great guests and killer stories. Thanks to a ton for listening, and until next time, keep the rubber side down.